It's Tuesday, April 18th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The defamation trial of the Fox News Corp versus Dominion Voting Systems was to open in Delaware today, but it closed down because Dominion got paid, yo. And Fox can continue on as the most trusted name in cable news. They took out a full page ad in the New York Times. Notice the New York Times doesn't take out ads on Fox. That should tell you something. But there were still many revelations in the pre-trial discovery that bear paying attention to. Almost all those revelations indicate that this trial represented an extremely bad set of facts for Fox. Maybe that's why Dominion made, I don't know, almost a billion dollars, I'm hearing. And good, I said. From what I could tell, that seems right. Fox misled viewers without regard for the facts on an extremely important issue. There should be serious consequences for serious misreporting. If you're a longtime Fox observer, notice I didn't say an enthusiastic Fox viewer, but if you know what's up with Fox, you're not too surprised that they aired claims that weren't properly vetted, that didn't hold up to scrutiny, and that those claims favored the positions of former President Trump. But why? Why? Why they air those claims? Hmm. It's an interesting thing, this why. The important insight I have gleaned from the facts, as revealed so far, has led me to big questions about a big thesis about Fox. So the thesis is Fox is a danger to democracy. But again, but why? They're a danger to democracy, sure. Large parts of their programming have been propaganda. They're a propaganda network. And the problem, we're told, we think, with propaganda, is that by airing untrue statements, misinformation, you misinform the public, And in a democracy, that means citizens make bad decisions, vote for substandard candidates, and have poorly formed opinions. They're wrong on the big issues based on the bad facts you gave them. Propaganda curdles the election pool. But that's not what happened with this stolen election spin. The danger actually ran in the opposite direction. Fox was afraid of its own viewers. Fox was convinced that if they didn't give viewers what the viewers wanted, then they would defect to Fox rivals like OAN, and Fox was right to be concerned. The problem wasn't so much the network misinforming viewers, it was the network experiencing audience capture, which isn't good because the audience was off its rocker on this issue. You could argue that it was conditioned over the years by Fox programming to believe nonsense here and there, as comes from Trump. But in this case, it seems to be that the directional arrow of harm ran in the opposite direction from the usual concern of major outlet using the megaphone to infect the electorate. Seems that the contagion crawled through that megaphone and infected the host. The host being eh, Maria Bartiromo, Sean Hannity, Lou Dobbs. Think about that, though. This isn't to say the only danger from a place like Fox is that they go where the audience directs them. A lot of places do that. It's a danger I've talked about. And for instance, it's certainly true that Fox is very willing and happy to go where the audience didn't even know where it wanted to go, like to exaggerate threats of the Mexican caravan or to talk endlessly about Black Panthers intimidating people at voting stations. That wasn't because the viewers demand that those items be covered, but that's because they found those items and put them in their programming, and that captivated viewers, got them ratings, made them money. And in lots of cases, it is hard to discern chicken and egg, cause and effect, Tucker and Tucky. 
But by recognizing that the flow of propaganda is not always unidirectional, it should give us some insight as to government efforts to intervene. It's useless to label something disinformation when it's the audience insisting, no, 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 it's information. And it's the disseminators playing along because of profit motive. It also makes you question the efficacy of de-platforming. It's not the platform that draws the audience. It's the audience sometimes that demands certain guests and ideas be given a platform. None of these insights takes Fox off the hook. It just demonstrates that the hook's curvature wasn't always what we thought. And as for Dominion, well, congratulations, good sirs. They apparently got a great payday from Fox, and along the way, shed valuable light on Fox's business practices. And to get there, they only had to put up with countless hours of character assassination, and perhaps worse, an extended stay in Delaware. On the show today, another side to the audience capture coin coverage of the shooting of an innocent by an old man with a gun. But first, a month ago, Silicon Valley and signature banks collapsed. First Republic Bank still not doing well, teetering, you might say. But look at the profits of J.P. Morgan. Wells Fargo and Citigroup, they all reported yesterday really good first quarter earnings. Today, Bank of America earnings came in. They were expecting 82 cents per share. They got 94 cents per share. This means the four biggest banks in America are doing just fine, better than fine. Wonderful, thank you. But banking as a sector and as a pillar of society should be a lot healthier than it is. That is the argument of my guest, Catherine Judge, editor of the Journal of Financial Regulation and Columbia Law Professor. She is here with her prescription. I expected a lot from this interview, and I got to say, it came in over expectations. Catherine Judge up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A little over a month ago, a bunch of banks were collapsing or about to collapse, and now things maybe have stabilized. There's almost no one that I'd rather talk 
to about this more than my next guest, Catherine Judge. She's a professor at Columbia Law School. She is the editor of the Journal of Financial Regulation, and perhaps shockingly, her Twitter bio for the editor of the Journal of Financial Regulation self-identifies as a banking nerd. Professor Judge, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Too hard. Too hard on yourself. Um, Where are we? Are we, uh, I don't want to say out of the woods, but let's imagine there is a big woods and we thought we were falling into a pit with spikes. Where are we now? You know what? I think we are suspended over that pit and we have a whole variety of different trajectories. There is a path the economy could take that would allow smooth sailing from here on out. But there's a whole variety of paths that the economy could very likely take that would result in a lot of pain going forward. So there's a lot of reasons to be worried that it's more of an eye of the storm calm than an actual pass the panic calm. What's your assessment of what the regulators are the people who will decide the paths of the economy? What do you think that they think uh, about where we are related to the woods and the pit and everything else? That's really hard to say right now. I mean, one of the core challenges is we're hearing a lot from the Fed and the Treasury about how safe and sound the banking system is. And it's an effort to restore that calm. It's an effort to calm the panic. But as a practical matter, they were also saying that before SVB and Signature and Silvergate. I mean, it wasn't just one. It was three regional banks that failed in a very short window of time, uh, exploded with two in a very messy way. They're saying the same thing, but I would say for different reasons. Beforehand, they thought it was true, right? <laughs> now they know that it might not be, but it's important to project confidence. Yeah, and I think that's part of what you really want to know what they're doing internally. Ideally, what you want them to be doing internally is projecting a sense of calm and yet underwater being the little duck that's paddling like crazy and really trying to engage in some more aggressive stress tests. So, you know, depositors might well be shifting out of the banking system or demanding a much higher rate of interest to stay in it. That's going to really hurt banks. Uh, there's a lot going on with commercial real estate. There's still a lot of interest rate risk. Um, and, and so what you'd really want them to be doing is not just looking at a static shot of where the banks are, but looking ahead, looking at the shocks that might actually hit, and trying to figure out how healthy are different types of banks going to be, and how able are they going to be to provide credit, depending on what happens. Yes, I've been hearing about a credit crunch. Maybe that's true, maybe not. But let's talk about those duck feet. Is the concern that three banks fail because you don't want, they don't want three banks to fail? Or is it that, well, we don't care really that much, and maybe it's even good and uh, capitalistic if three banks that have made bad choices fail? But we know the contagion could mean 30 banks fail and 300 banks fail. So to wind back to the beginning of the question, do they really care? If they knew that three to 10 banks would fail, but that would be it, would they say that was a good thing or a bad thing? You know, it really depends on how much they have done to, in advance, contain the fallout of those bank failures. Part of what made the failures of Signature and SVB so much more disastrous from a regulatory perspective than the, the failure of Silvergate was that they had to invoke this incredibly exceptional systemic risk exception, right? So you need a supermajority of the Fed, a supermajority of the FDIC, you need the Treasury Secretary in consultation with the President, all to come together to say, like, if we don't intervene and then allocate losses in a different way than the default rules, there's going to be really, really bad things that happen. And so it's not about whether banks fail or not, it's whether they fail in a way where that failure can be contained and you can follow those default rules. 
Are, are you saying that they were annoyed that it was bureaucratically onerous? It's not just bureaucratically onerous. It requires then the burden on them to say, well, what was it that made this situation so special? And that's where we haven't gotten the best explanation so far, right? So one is we have three different types of banks. You can think about these like really global, everybody admits they're systemically significant banks. We got the really small community banks. And then we have a whole variety of banks that are in between size, oftentimes called regionals, but really they're very large banks. And what we had here was a failure of two of those regionals. And so part of the debate is, are regionals actually part of that systemically significant one? Is that we care about regionals and we're worried about regionals? Or is there something about the broader climate, the uncertainty in the climate, the interest rate associated losses that are sitting on every single bank balance sheet? And, and that's what is partly uh, not resolved yet. And I don't know if they have an answer for that yet. So the community banks are, are like a fingernail. The regional banks are like a limb and the big global banks are like a vital organ. But if a limb becomes gangrenous, gangrene, gets gangrene in the limb, that could affect the vital organ. Yeah, and I would go even further. I think those little fingernail community banks also have the potential to bring down the entire system. They are only 17% of the system by banking assets. They do 40% of the small business lending. So if what you're really worried about is the health of the broad economy, are they willing to continue to provide credit that we need for the economy to grow? Those like little fingernails might not matter individually, but you put them all together and the system does not work without them. That's right. In Grinnell, sepsis sets in. So are we saying then that we know that there are some banks too big to fail, which one, or some um, financial institutions too big to fail? Okay, which ones are they? The answer is actually all of them, and we're just not admitting it. That is the big question, which is why we're having this debate about deposit insurance. That's why we're having this debate about supervision. That's why we're having this debate about regulatory rules. If there was like a small number of them and we could just like really beef up the regulation that we impose on that small number, there was a way to manage that process. It was not a perfect system by any means, but there was a way that we had come to an uncomfortable equilibrium. If it's every bank, because once we allow depositors in one bank to incur losses, we're worried about runs at other banks, then there is no limiting principle. It is the entire banking system. Absolutely. And that answers my question that if they knew that the three wouldn't fail, would they allow the three to fail? They can't know that. And because they can't know that, whatever they think the risk is, a very small percent risk that the uh, fingernail creates sepsis, it uh, just means that the safest way that these regulators have of uh, overseeing the system is just never to have any bank fail. And I guess then you get into a problem of, but if everyone knows that, it creates all sorts of moral hazards and, and worse. Yeah, and I should point out that at least for Signature and SVB, shareholders were wiped out, non-depositor creditors were wiped out. So this wasn't a bailout where the entire institution was saved. But you did have huge amounts of uninsured depositors that should have incurred losses if you're trying to minimize you know, the, the losses otherwise shifted over to the depository institution fund. And so, yeah, I mean, and part of the question also is, do you end up in a world where you have the opposite? If everybody thinks depositors are always going to be protected, do you end up with a lot of yield seeking? I mean, one of the things that we've seen is bad banks offer really high rates of interest, uh, even on insured products. If that were the case, I got to get into banking or at least invest <laughs> in riskiest, you know, the riskiest bonds of banks, the 
junkier, the better. But, you know, you did mention there was a debate about how much, uh, where should the insurance caps be? And it's $250,000 for individual depositors. I saw you literally taking part in a debate. Uh, I didn't see the live stream of it, but can you tell me what your position is on that? You know what? I have to admit, I was not part of the active debate, ah. partly because I don't think it's a question. Right now, we're trying to have that debate over like where deposit insurance limits should be. And for me, it's not a question that can be answered in isolation. So I don't think you can have the current bank regulatory structure and supervisory structure and take away deposit limits and not end up in a world where you end up with a lot of yield seeking. But I think the bigger and more interesting question is, should we actually be rethinking the structure of that overall system a little bit more in ways that actually allow us to be, say, you know, depositors might not be the best source of discipline, what might be some of the other sources, but that requires a much more nuanced rethinking of the entire structure. So so part of the question for me is, I think the very framing of the question uh, elides the more interesting and substantive issues that we actually need to get into if we want to build a resilient and functional banking system. So you do, I'm going to guess, you do think we should be rethinking that question. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there, I think there's a place for deposit limits um, in the current system, but I just think that there's a broader debate that we ought to have over the structure of that system. Okay, I'm appointing you to the Fed or even someplace with more, uh, with more power than that. What are some changes you're advocating for? I mean, I actually think we would need to rethink the overall structure of the banking system. And again, I think whether we like it or not, at this point, there's a place for the GSIBs, the globally systemically important banking organizations. Like there, there is a place for them and we're not going to get them to go away. I also think there's a vital place for the community banks and whether they're economically viable on their own in the current environment is a real challenge. So I would like us to think about how we can use these old school devices that are out there, like the federal home loan bank system, to actually, you know, provide a little bit of the risk sharing and the support and the stable sources of funding that help community banks really remain viable because they are just so critical to small business lending and to serving their communities. And the regionals, you know, like I, I, I want to see the case for why we actually need these really, really large banks that are subject to significantly less regulation than the GSIBs. Under Dodd-Frank, as you know, there was a requirement that banks get stress tested if they had over $50 billion in assets. And that was then revised to be over $200 billion in assets. And uh, some of these very banks that we're talking about were right at that threshold. So in other words, they escaped the stress test and it turns out they couldn't handle the stress. How, I I talked to Aaron Klein about this and he says, that's not the important point. It's that it doesn't matter where you set the thresholds or what you say the rules are if you're not even enforcing the rules or competently looking at the rules, any regulator at any threshold should have been able to detect that these banks had really worrisome balance sheets. But what do you think of the usefulness of the old thresholds and the new thresholds? And should we go back to 50 billion requiring a stress test? Yeah, a couple of things. So first, I agree with Aaron that the problems that we're looking at with Signature and SDB are ones that should have been apparent regardless. Second, all banks do stress tests. I mean, like you do a banking 101 credit risk analysis, every single bank should be constantly stress testing their balance sheet, particularly against known risks. And interest rate risk is like absolutely core to banking. So I mean, it's not about whether or not you're doing stress tests. It's about this particular regulatory stress test. And there, I think we probably should not have gone all the way from 50 to 200. 250. And just to be clear, Congress in 2018 did move the minimum threshold, but also gave the Fed a meaningful amount of discretion 
on banks that are over 100, 100, but below 250. So there was a lot more that the Fed could do, and I would say going forward should do, to promote stress, more rigorous stress testing and more rigorous regulation of banks that are in that 100 to $250 billion bucket. Uh, but more generally, I think what we're seeing is that supervision needs to be a complement for regulation rather than just making sure that banks are complying with regulation. So going back to what you just said, there's a bunch of thresholds, right? And so you might say like, okay, like after a bank hits a certain threshold, we're gonna have tougher regulation and tougher supervision. As a practical matter, I'm more worried about the banks that are just below a threshold because odds are they pose risks that are not that different than the ones that are just above. So in terms of supervisory resources, like where you wanna have boots on the ground, oversight, close attention. It's on the banks that are growing quickly. It's on the banks that have other indigia that maybe they're doing something that's problematic, like they're borrowing a lot from the federal home loan banks. Not always a problem, but sometimes it is. And it's on the banks that are actually just below rather than just above the thresholds, no matter where you set those thresholds. Yeah, the fingernails, the fingernail banks. But I'm going to interrupt and say, what is indigia? Indignia? What is that word? Oh, indigia. Indigia. Sorry. Indigia. Indigia are just signs. I mean, we know. So, like, this is one of the reasons that Aaron said to you, anybody should have been able to identify these banks as problem banks. There's trends that banks follow before banks fail. They are all trends that some banks follow and don't fail. So it's not a sign of, like, here's a bank that is definitely in trouble. But you put these signs together, and they are the signs that make it much more likely this bank is going to get in trouble soon. One is the stock price is going down. Two, the overall size is going up. When banks grow quickly, they tend to make a lot of bad decisions combined with their rapid growth. Another one, they borrow a lot from what's called the federal home loan bank system. Nobody knows anything about it. It's a great topic in and of itself, second only to Treasury in terms of U.S. dollar denominated debt outstanding. But basically, that just means when a bank's borrowing a lot from the federal home loan banks, that's government-backed funding effectively. And that's a sign that they're having a hard time. If they're really increasing their reliance on that government-backed funding, it's a sign they're having a really hard time getting the funding they need through the markets. Yeah. I actually meant to find the word indicia, but now I get it by context. The indication. Sorry. No, there, I, there I am. I'm such a banking person, you know? I love, I love learning language. So indicia are what are the signs. It's what's the dashboard. It's like yeah. if you want to understand where are the banks that might end up being a problem in the near future, yeah. what do I want to have on that dashboard? And a lot of it is trend lines along right. these dimensions. I just know I'm going to walk into a Wall Street pot shop and they're going to be selling a string called Indicia. That is definitely <laughs> going to happen. I do want to ask you about the book, about your book about middlemen. Man, does everyone hate the middleman. And for the first five years of podcasting, half of my ads were essentially, there's this thing you always bought. The price was really high. We've eliminated the middleman, i.e. we're selling it over the internet. And now we have cheaper stamps, meals, watches, shirts, apps. Absolutely everything. Man, does everyone hate the middleman. But we also kind of need the middleman. Your book, to me, when I read it uh, was, or when I read about it, was very much implicating the supply chain. And I have a lot of questions about that because with the pandemic, the supply chain came up. What about banking? How does, was the book originally written about the supply chain, but it really does apply to banking? How does banking fit into the overall thesis? So actually, there's just incredible parallels between the two. So part of what we saw is a massive trend in banking starting in the 1980s where we moved away from these small community banks that were relationship-based banks 
And admittedly, we're exposed to a bunch of local shocks. If something goes wrong in a company town, the bank goes down and brings everybody else with it. So it's, it, there were problems with that system. But it was a relationship-based closed system. To saying, you know, with technology, soft information can become hard. Uh, so we no longer need those relationships. We can have these massive mega banks that exercise way too much influence over our regulatory policies. But just as importantly, we don't need to have all those loans sitting on bank balance sheets. Once we've made soft information hard, we can standardize all of this. We can pool those loans together. We can put them in securitization vehicles. We can create layers of securitization vehicles because we can standardize all of this. We can contract around all of this. And so what you see is not just a shift uh, from small banks to large banks, but those large banks bring technology to the table and have a different business model that allows them to then feed in to these much longer and more complex supply chains. And in the short run, everything's great. 2006, home ownership rates were at all-time highs. You had black home ownership rates at all-time highs. Everybody thought, like, this was great because now we can have those pension funds helping to fund homeowners, European banks helping to fund homeowners. Looked happy for everybody until everything went wrong, right? So as soon as some of those mortgages were not performing the way people thought, nobody could figure out where the risk lies. And we think about the Lehman weekend. There was 13 months before the from when the financial crisis started until Lehman failed. And you see the Fed and all of these other policymakers and market participants trying to figure out, well, how big is the problem and where is the problem? And in, the situation becomes so diffuse that they could not track it. And that's why it just kept growing and growing and growing because they're trying to plug up holes without being able to figure out where those holes were. Going back to like where we started this program, we know how to deal with a banking crisis. You figure out where the weaknesses are and you plug the holes. They could not figure out where the weaknesses are, so they couldn't plug the holes and the problem just morphed. Supply chains were the exact same thing. You had Amazon and Walmart, large intermediaries, like the big banks and like securitization, makes our lives easier day to day. Short run, it almost always is more, can be more efficient, makes our lives happier. Long run, it's leading to much more complex supply chains because in the name of efficiency, you're taking what had been this process that happened all in one place and disaggregating it, another big word I know, you know, across all these different places, across all these different continents. And before you know it, you've got really cheap goods, but there's sources of fragility that you don't even understand that you're exposed to because you have such limited insight into what the overall system looks like. So it was really a book that went from banking to the real economy. Yeah, and so as a general thesis, it is so easy for the virtuous cycle, the flywheel, when things are going well and there's an accelerant for things going even more well. When that stops changes and switches on a dime, it becomes a vicious cycle. And all the accelerants that were seemed very positive at the time now become complications harder to unwind. Could not have said it better. And that's where you really want to think that there's trade-offs between that short-term efficiency and the long-term resilience and sometimes the accountability. And I think in a world where crises are becoming more common, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's geopolitical dynamics, there's a lot of reasons to be worried that a lot of the structures that accreted over time to maximize these short-term gains have sources of fragility that's going to make it a lot messier as we continue to have all these different shocks hitting the economy. But, but, but Catherine, Professor Judge, you're saying something unbelievably profound, I think, which is it's not about good people or bad people 
um, carelessly setting into motion processes that they can't even control. The people who wanted to bring about globalization really truly saw, you know, lifting the Chinese and the Indians out of poverty and maybe helping the uh, consumers in the United States. But once things become so interrelated and so connected, once we go from a world of numerical growth to a world of exponential growth in all of our systems, there are real dangers to that, seems to be what you're saying. And I don't know how to stop it on the front end, but we got to think about it more. And that's basically it. And the truth is, there is opportunism. When you have concentrations of power, you do have opportunism. So I don't want to deny that that is part of the story. But a big part of it is a lot of small decisions that were meant maximizing one axis and not thinking about all of the collateral consequences. And those collateral consequences are coming home to roost. Catherine Judge is co-editor of the Journal of Financial Regulations. She's the Harvey J. Goldschmidt Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. Her book is Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. Consider all these credentials mere indicia of her expertise. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Last Thursday, a 16-year-old boy was shot once in the head and once in the arm by an 84-year-old white man in Kansas City. The boy, Ralph Yarl, had walked up to Andrew Lester's front door looking to pick up his siblings. He made a mistake. It was the wrong house. Lester brought his 32 Smith & Wesson with him to the door and, fearful of an attack for some reason, began firing at the teen. Yarl will live. Lester was charged with felony assault and felony armed criminal action. The case is horrific, but most of the media are intent on portraying it as totemic. As of 4 p.m. today, the New York Times has run eight stories on the Yarl shooting, NPR 4. Contrast this with the case of Kaylin Gillis. On Saturday, she and friends pulled into the wrong driveway while looking for a friend's house in upstate New York. The owner of the house she pulled into, again feeling threatened, pulled out a gun and shot into the car and hit the 20-year-old. Unlike Jarl, Gillis is dead. This story, out of upstate New York, was covered in one story in the New York Times and one time on NPR. NPR did link to the local public radio station, which ran three stories on Gillis, whereas KCUR in Kansas City, the public radio station there, has, as of 4 p.m., 26 stories up about Ralph Yarl. President Biden, Vice President Harris, celebrities like Jennifer Hudson, Halle Berry, and Kerry Washington have tweeted words of support for the wounded but recovering Yarl. No administration officials have spoken out that I'm aware of about Gillis. But the issue is the same. It's the rampant presence of guns and the public's over-eagerness to use them. But the news about Ralph Yarl's injury touched on guns mm, as but a side note. This was covered as a racial justice issue. Yarl School staged a walkout. Why? A show of support. That's sweet, but what was the ask? What was the protest? Just a show of support, the student said. Some activists and the family's lawyers insisted that the 84-year-old Lester be detained and charged. He was. Local public radio station KCUR's program Up to Date had on as a guest social justice advocate Justice Gaston. That's her name, Justice Gaston. What was the ask of social justice advocates, they asked Gaston. What are protesters demanding specifically here, Justice? Well, the demands 
was for the arrest, right? Because this man was allowed to go and not just, you know, leave, but he left the state as far as we know. We believe him to be at a vacation home in Arizona. And so the demand is for acknowledge that something has happened here and make the appropriate um, decision. There is no evidence that Lester was anywhere but Kansas City waiting to turn himself into authorities, which he did. KCRU did not correct or challenge the claim that he fled the state. Justice Gaston asked for justice and charges have indeed been filed. This again is a horrible gun-based tragedy. What about racism? Was Andrew Lester motivated by racism? I would say quite possibly. He described Yarl as threatening and large when Yarl wasn't threatening, or nor does he appear to be anything other than a normal-sized 16-year-old boy. But this was played as one of a never-ending series of incidents where a white person guns down a black person, often a boy, and nothing is done in response, even though Lester was arrested and charged. The coverage of this killing asked, how can this keep happening, even though it rarely happens? Homicide statistics aren't great in the United States, but a good batch came out, the FBI's National Incident-Based Reporting System. There were 22,900 murders in 2021. Most of them, over 14,000 murders, were committed against black people, and the overwhelming majority of those were committed by black people. Another way to say it is most of the murders and most of the murderers or murder suspects are African Americans in a country where only 14% of the people is African American. Now, this happens with every demographic group. Violence against them is done by other members of their group that is consistent throughout the board, but it is also true true, and we should say it, and no one is, that the murder of young black men by young black men is a particular national emergency. And it is also untrue that white people are committing anything other than a small handful of the murders of black people. In fact, in fact, it is more than twice as likely for a black person to murder a white person as for a white person to murder a black person. Now, please don't interpret this to mean that that particular strain of killing, black people murdering white people, are particularly statistically significant. It's not. The statistically significant killings are the mass killings of all of us, but particularly the majority of the victims, which are black people. But It is also true that at a time when we're talking about this rampant scourge of black people being killed by white people, it's also true that it happens much less frequently than even the other direction, which happens much, much, much less frequently than the most common types of murders. Given the age of the perpetrator and the victim in the Kansas City case, had Ralph Yarrell died, which of course, thankfully he didn't, It would probably be the only case of an octogenarian white man killing a black teenager this year. I wouldn't be surprised if it were one of maybe a dozen examples, two dozen examples, where a white man of any age killed a black man of any age who was a stranger. Stranger killings are exceedingly uncommon. Cross-racial stranger killings even less so. Now, the Kansas City Star quoted Gwen Grant, president and CEO of the Urban League, as saying, quote, fighting these battles day in, day out excessive and deadly force against young black men, whether it's at the hands of police or at the hands of another white person, is exhausting. Excessive police force is certainly a problem. I've talked about it dozens of times here. But being exhausted by the problem of deadly force against black people by white people, 
In Kansas City last year, 98 murder victims were black men. 86 of the suspects for murder were black men. Police killings, according to mapping police violence in Kansas City, show that the police force there have killed 25 black men over the last 11 years. 21 of those 25 have been armed. Two unarmed black men have been killed by the Kansas City Police Department in the last eight years. It should be zero, but this isn't an exhausting epidemic. It's horrific when it happens, but please let's not overstate how often it happens. Lawyer Benjamin Crump is representing the Yarl family. He made the rounds answering such questions. This one posed by CNN's Jake Tapper. The Kansas City Star is reporting uh, that Ralph Yarl was released from the hospital yesterday. Uh, is that good news? It was, in fact, a good thing, Crump answered. And he was also asked this by Scripps News' Dell Waters. As a society, we have seen cases involving driving while black. We've seen cases where people were shot inside their own homes, which was the case of Breonna Taylor. We've seen people jogging while black, as was the case of Ahmaud Arbery. Each time parents have to say they have to have the talk with their sons and daughters. What do parents say to their sons and daughters, in your opinion, after this case? Crump answered, and this is a perfectly fine answer, that in a case like this, what more could you do or say? There's nothing young Ralph Yarl could have done differently, short of live in a country without all these guns. But a perfectly reasonable answer could have been, well, I would tell them that these particular kinds of killings, of course they happen too often, but they are extremely rare. I would tell the children that exhibiting special care around white people for fear that they will shoot you, it's not borne out by the evidence. Uh, I might tell them, probably wouldn't, but it is true that you're 30 times more likely or so to be shot by a member of your own race. I certainly wouldn't tell a black person that he doesn't live in a racist country. I'd never give the impression that he doesn't live in a violent country. America's racist, America's violent, but we're not racially violent in 2023, not interpersonally so. If you wanna talk about how structural racism leads to violence, that can be a good discussion. The terms tend to expand to mean whatever you want them to mean. But it is not complex systems undergirding the forces of society that Dell Waters was getting at there. That's not what LeBron James meant when he tweeted after the murder of Ahmed Aubrey, quote, we're literally hunted every day, every time we step foot outside the comfort of our homes. They both mean that white people are commonly murdering black people. The talk Walter spoke of is a talk about young black people not being systemically oppressed or driven to violence among themselves or put in positions of desperation and poverty with racist roots that have been shown to cause more violence. That's not the concern being expressed. The concern is black people meeting their deaths literally at the hands and guns of white people. But that happens less frequently than almost every other permutation of interracialized violence happens in the United States. Whites killing blacks in America is not really the problem, but it really is what we are told over 
and over again is the problem. In fact, we are way too violent and way too armed to society. And given the menu of horrifically violent acts America gives us to choose from, we could certainly tell all types of stories about who the perpetrators are and who the victims are and have plenty of examples to illustrate our narrative. I mean, Breitbart does this with their disgusting black crime vertical. Local news still has the if it bleeds, it leads ethos, which gives us all a warped picture of how dangerous any city is. But nationally, we, or mainstream media outlets, absolutely do highlight, cover, agonize over, emphasize, and frighten us with this particular form of relatively rare violence. And in doing so, they turn a blind eye to what can responsibly be called the actual epidemic. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the VP of Philanthropy for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.